We are starting a brand new series entitled The Fruit of the Spirit, which uh, the teaching team has generated. Danielle has asked me to provide an introduction to the book or the letter of Galatians as an introduction to the series, The Fruit of the Spirit. We're going to eventually go through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, and that's going to form the outline for the series, and we're going to ask ourselves some serious questions and explore what do each of those particular virtues and spiritual ideas mean, and see if we can exemplify some of that in our lives. What I'd like to do in this particular opening and introduction is go through the entire argument of what Paul is doing in the letter to the Galatians. So I need you to strap in. This is going to be a little bit of a ride. Are you ready for a ride? The last time you referenced, heard, quoted the book of Galatians was when? Never. Never. That's awesome. So this is going to be good for all of you who not only never have even heard of the book of Galatians, the letter to Galatians, or have most recently heard of it quoted in the debacle which has been the uh, voting for the Speaker of the House. Now, this particular speech did not get much airtime, but Hakeem Jeffries gave an opening Democratic speech, and in this particular speech, what letter did he quote? He quoted Galatians chapter six, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. In the context, for those of you who've been watching modern politics and all of the crazy that has been going on this particular week, this seems to be an appropriate verse. I am very grateful anytime politicians, public figures use the Bible to substantiate their ideas by pulling verses out of context because that's exactly what we do all the time. Hopefully that verse will make more sense when we get to the end of it. Of course, no shade necessarily to Hakeem Jeffries, but again, this is part of what we are attempting to do here, which is to create for you a better and grounding understanding of what's really going on. Why does this letter even exist? We often call the books of the Bible books, yes, but they're not. (laughs) or at least not all of them, or at least not in the conception that we understand them. They are epistles or letters. In, In other words, Paul, who is the author of this book, is actually authoring a letter. He is responding to some people who are teaching things, Uh, promulgating some ideas, wrestling with some things, and he's trying to not just write them a nice letter, a nice salutation, he's hearing things about what's going on in this location called Gaul, and he is appalled. (laughs) That one took you guys way too long to get. He, He is appalled at what he's hearing, and so he's writing a letter to correct. So whenever we enter into passages like Galatians and Philippians and Colossians, we're actually entering into a two-way dialogue. We're entering into a conversation that's already happening. So what I'd like to try to do, and this is clearly not everything, we've said this multiple times, we make lots of qualifications, that I'm going to give you one overriding perspective. There are others. So if you are listening to this and you've heard some sermons or messages or teachings, but what about this aspect of Galatians? Most likely the answer is yes. Our job here is just to get a grounding understanding and pull out some ideas that can be helpful for us for forming the framework. Galatians is written somewhere around the mid-first century CE, so it's appropriate for us to go all the way back to 2000 BC to start where did this whole Galatians thing begin. Starts with this gentleman named Abraham. 
Clearly an artist rendition, just in case some of you were wondering. And Abraham has this really fascinating story, which is a grounding, central story to the entire Bible. If you don't know the Abraham story, you'll be missing out on a grand narrative of what is happening to this guy way back approximately 2000 BCE. He starts in a location called Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, we kind of skip over that in our minds. Highly cosmopolitan, technologically advanced, politically and administratively robust. And he's in a place, that's a ziggurat, which is a tower, most likely referencing the Tower of Babel in uh, Genesis chapter 11, for those of you who know. And you can see that the, these particular ruins give an indication that this was a very highly advanced civilization and cosmopolitan as well for this particular area. And I like this picture because like, look, I'm holding up the ziggurat in my hand. Anyway, so that's Abraham. He, so he leaves out of this location, which is in the southern portion of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is a word that just simply means meso between Potemos between the rivers. And you can see the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates here. So he leaves out of this particular area, goes up to a location named Haran. Now, up in here, in that location, is when our biblical story essentially starts. Because God, apparently, out of this movement, calls Abraham to do something wonderful and special that's going to bless the entire world. Something about Abraham's premonitions, his movement, his obedience, something about that catches God's attention, which is one of the reasons why Abraham becomes a central figure in our story. Eventually, after that call, he heads down to Canaan, and you know a little bit, hopefully, some of the rest of the story of the things that happen there. Why that's important is because he's traveling along this section that archaeologists and sociologists call the Fertile Crescent. That's really important because he's actually following a very systematized line in the ancient Near East where there would have been food and water and infrastructure. Picture you going on a very big journey. You would most likely chart out the location where you know that there's going to be help and civilization along the way. He ends up down here in Canaan. Uh, what we call Palestine or Israel. There's lots of different names for it depending upon which era you are referring to. And here, at this location, God sets a covenant with Abraham, calls him, and gives him basically three big things. This is in Genesis chapter 15. He's going to give him an inheritance. That's essentially the land. And land is everything to the ancient Israelites. He's going to give him a great name and a great reputation so much so that a church, a little church in Palo Alto is going to still be talking about this guy 4,000 years later. Just from a historical perspective, number two is true, has come true. Great name, reputation. We are still talking about Abraham. And his name is great. In other words, he's got a great reputation. We are talking about him in very lofty and admirable and honorable terms. And then number three, this is the key thing. He is going to be a blessing to the world. Through his lineage, through his faithfulness, through everything that Abraham does, not only are we going to know about him, we are going to receive good things and blessings that come from Abraham's line. Has this come true? Yes, essentially, yes. Now, you could argue sociologically and anthropologically all the different distinctions and nuances, but for practical purposes, this is true. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, the three Abrahamic religions are the most promulgated religions on the face of the planet. And again, we are still referring back to these stories. 
in the sense of whatever blessings that have come, whatever reputation he has, whatever inheritance, we are still talking about that to this day as a fundamental essence of what it means to be a person of faith. This is the story of Abraham. Very truncated. There's lots of things that happen in between. Of course, you'll need to read and go through garden to garden to get through all of the nuances and the goodness of the narrative. But this is the stuff. This is what we go back to on a regular basis. Inheritance, great name, and a blessing to the world. 430 years later, that is a long time, longer than our nation has been officially around. A gift is given to the descendants of Abraham, a gift that was going to radically transform all of the people, the children of Abraham, how they organize themselves, what they think about themselves, their morals, their ethics, and the stories that they tell. What is this gift that was given 430 years later? We call it the Ten Commandments. We call it the law. Uh, the, The Bible itself calls it the Torah. The Torah is a word that means teachings. We, this behind actually here is called a Torah closet. And in there are the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is a gift that is given to the ancient Israelites to guide them to provide for them what does it mean to have life, to give them parameters for what is good and what is bad, figure out where is life and where is death. And the order of this is extremely important. And this happens over and over and over in, the, in the, our biblical text. The first thing that happens when it comes to how God lays out his promises and his covenant with people, the first thing is the covenant, the agreement, the call, the special dynamic relationship, the fact that you are in. That is what is first. Merely because of God's faithfulness, God's love, God's grace, every single one of us have access to a dynamic, brilliant, beautiful, meaningful relationship with God. That is what is first. And only later, second, do the parameters, the laws, the teachings, the commandments, the guiding things that make sure that we protect and keep and care for this community, only after, does, only after the covenant comes the commandments. This is going to be really critical and important to understand when it comes to Galatians and honestly to the foundation of the Christian faith. You don't become a Christian or you don't become accepted by God or you don't become in favor with the church, hopefully, because you have followed the commandments. That's backwards. You become in favor with God. You are loved. You are welcomed. You are blessed to be a part of this community first because of who God is. And it's only after you understand your dynamic relationship and your familial connection Do you get the commandments? Here's how you uphold and how you keep. Very much like the family. There is no obligation whatsoever for my daughter to keep any of the rules in the house. She is family. And now that you're family, would you do your dishes for crying out loud and put your toys away? This is how we keep the family. But her identity in the family is irrelevant or is completely disconnected from whether or not she obeys any of the commands. Does this make sense? This is the predication of our faith. 
and our faith tradition. It is important, however, because if you are going to protect that beautiful dynamic covenant relationship, we have to abide by some things. We have to ensure that lying and stealing and adultery and deceit, these kinds of things do not inhibit the beautiful covenantal dynamic relationship. If we allow those things in, then the entire community begins to break down. And this is just a basic fundamental truth. It's just axiomatic. This is just like ground level. So in addition to getting the commandments, they are told to keep them, protect them, guard them, obey them. And every time you hear the obedience I know because of some of our religious experience and, and some of our church experiences, you are going to be triggered because we've had some bad religious experiences. Part of it, which we'll get to in Galatians, you, when you hear obey, obey, you hear do this or you're out. Do this or if you don't, then you're somehow a less Christian. Do this or somehow I'm going to demean you or make fun of you or I'm going to spite you, whatever. We have that, unfortunately, in our culture. Them, the intention, and if you read this carefully, you keep this Torah because that's what protects life. You do this because that's how life flourishes. That's how we advance beauty and wonder and mystery and connection and relationship. Are you tracking so far? This is really important. If we don't get this, then the rest of the argument's going to be a little shaky. This is really critical. Covenant and call first. Commandment second. Your identity and your relationship with God and with the body of people who are called by God within this faith, that is irrelevant to you keeping the commandments. But once you recognize your connection, keeping the commandments is what protects and guards and keeps the community. There are two things that happened over time that are really important to understand because religions evolve, we evolve, times change. The first is that this word Torah, which means teachings and guidance, got translated into a Greek word that means law. That's the first shift. So when you read in your Bible law, most of the time they're probably referring to Torah, which is teachings. Unfortunately, because of our word law and because what it means and the connotations that it has, we somehow think of legislative. But Torah is not just legislative. There, there are those aspects, but it's much more about teaching and guidance and wisdom, as we have talked about before. So that's number one. Torah got translated into the word law. The second thing that happened is a recognition that this covenant relationship was dynamic essentially for one of two groups of people in the category of the biblical narrative. There are Jews and then there are non-Jews. There are people of Abraham and there are non-people of Abraham. So there are Jews and there are Gentiles. This is kind of the way that we construct it. And for hundreds of years, there was a profound understanding that this covenant to commandment idea was essentially just for the Jews. That's who it was for. That's why the Jews were understood, the Israelites were understood to be God's special people, that they were called. And so while this is amazingly profound good news, this is actually good news essentially for the Jewish people. 
As a result of this idea, the principles of keeping this law, because it was about your dynamic relationship with God, of which you being Israelite or being Jewish was primarily the identifier by which you were a part of this relationship, if you were Gentile, you were not. Then the second thing that shifted was not only is it keep this law for life, but now it was keep this law for identity. This is not just for life. This is what tells you and tells me that I'm Jewish, that I am part of the Israelite heritage and descendants. I am Abraham's child. In the Bible, you'll read Abraham's seed. What once was for the entirety of the world, blessing to the entire world, became a law that was commanded, and if you kept it, that was what showed you and showed everybody else that you were a part of this particular tribe. That shift happened over several hundreds of years, still exists around a little bit today, and three particular elements during the first century arose to become a primary element of this Torah law keeping. Can you want to, anybody want to guess what they are? Take a wild guess. Oh, did I throw it up? I already threw it up. Circumcision, eating kosher, and honoring the Sabbath. Now, you can tell already that these particular elements, even to this day, identify you as somebody who follows a Jewish faith or follows that particular Jewish practice. And let's just say all of those are in the Torah. Circumcision comes from the covenant that Abraham makes with God in Genesis 17 to mark yourself and your descendants, your line, your seeds as special and set apart. Kosher is a way out of Leviticus, a way of recognizing what is good and what is not good when it comes to how we eat and what kind of dietary uh, practices we have. Taking care of the animal and taking care of the fields is all, all part of that. And then, of course, Sabbath, the recognition of uh, not only the Sabbath from Genesis chapter 1, but also the creative nature of setting aside constant activity to be rejuvenated, to be regenerated, to stop and to recognize God is God, I am not. So these are all good things. There's nothing bad about any of these things. They are part of the thing. But what has happened is these things rose up through the culture to become identified, again, not as keeping it for life, but for keeping it for identity. Because here's the main question. Who does this? The ancients outside of Israel, thought circumcision was mutilation. Just read about the Greeks. They thought this was an abhorrent practice. Kosher, you, want, you don't want to eat... I mean, have you had bacon? Come on. This is... Really? You don't eat that? What is wrong with you? By the way, you'll also see other archaeological evidences, other writings, for how people treated animals when they ate them, keeping them alive while they slaughtered them because they felt like that kind of treatment of animal actually produced the best meat. There's a lot of parallels between the ancient world and our world. And then for Sabbath, who takes a day off, you lazy fill-in-the-blank? And in fact, this was going to be one of the criticisms of the Jewish people throughout history, both by the Greeks and the Romans. Who takes a day off? You are lazy. You should work seven days a week. So the question of who does this is a pertinent one. 
And if you are part of Abraham's lineage and you are part of that covenant and you want to follow God and be faithful, then you're going to do these things. But because of this separation between Jew and Gentile and because of these practices are separate as well, nobody else does this, over time, the very things that were intended to bring life shifted in consciousness to now becoming ethnic identity markers. This is what we do if you happen to be Jewish. This is what we do if you happen to say that you are a child of Abraham. Do this, and that's how you know who you are. The shift from life to ethnic or tribal identity, that is one of the hugest things that has happened in the course of our tradition and our faith. Circumcision, kosher, and Sabbath become essentially the ethnic identity markers that people then use to say, are you in or are you out? Are you in or are you out? I'm going to take a check, and if you do these things, then you're in, and if you don't do these things, then you're out. There's a term for this. First identified in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you can look that up um, around the first or second century BC, that people were starting to use this as a phrase called works of the law. It was a technical term to refer to the ceremonial, ethnic, and tribal identity markers to say, this is how you know you are in. This is how you know you are part of Abraham's line. This is how you know you are part of the covenant. Do this. This is what sets us apart. Nobody else is going to do this. They all think we're crazy. So fine, let them have their non-Torah obedience kind of lifestyle. We're going to follow this, and this is what makes us special and set apart. These ethnic identity markers, this is what it is all about. That is our faith. That is our tradition. And if you want to become a part of the blessings of Abraham that were promised to the entire world, what now must you do? This. This is what you must do. This was a part, this was a faction of the discussion that was happening in the first and second centuries BC. As you can imagine, somebody comes along and says, I don't think so. And says, you know, the Torah is good. You should honor and obey it. It is there to protect the community. It is there to give you life. But you you don't maybe understand, you might have missed something along the way. This person that comes along in the first century begins teaching things about non-Jewish people, about foreigners, about Greeks, and about Romans, and about other people who are not a part of the tribe in ways that sound eerily familiar to the Abrahamic covenant, like they are in too, but they're not circumcised. They don't honor kosher laws. They don't keep the Sabbath. And they're in too? Yes, because my kingdom is not of this world. It's of something very different. And so it is clear that Jesus, when he first comes up upon the scene, begins to advocate for a shift in this Jewish consciousness. And Gentiles in that particular sense were not a primary focus of this early Jesus movement. But it is very clear throughout the gospel accounts and then through Acts and through these letters that it was never meant or intended to be a tribal or ethnic movement. Jesus comes into this 
debate and discussion within Judaism and Israelite history and says, guess what? They're in too. And guess what? All of these things that you think are important, yes, they are still important, but in the grand scheme of things, they don't matter when it comes to building the kingdom. It doesn't matter when it comes to God's love and grace. It doesn't matter when it comes to inclusion and your participation within the community. Those things don't matter for that. Let's get it straight. Let's go back to the original conception. First is a covenant. You're in. Why? Because you are a child of Abraham. You are a descendant of Adam. You are in. You are made in the image and likeness of God. And that's it. Is that all the qualifications? That's all the qualifications. You're in. And this Jesus, I mean, you need to read the Gospels, revolutionized everything. Just changed the conception so much so that people wanted to kill him. Because like, excuse me, you're disrupting everything. And so this religion that Jesus entered into to revolutionize and transform took this movement of Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldeans, out of Haran, out of Canaan, and moved it up. After Jesus dies, it begins to spread like wildfire. Why? Because Jesus said, everybody's in. That means the Greeks are in. That means the Egyptians are in. That means the Persians are in. That means the Gauls are in. And up in this particular location, the letter to which we are now going to get to, in this location called Gaul or Galatia, they're in too. That's what's so brilliant about this movement. That's why most of us in this room do not have any Jewish heritage, and I'm, we're not even going to ask whether or not you're circumcised, keep kosher, or whether or not you keep the Sabbath. Because it's irrelevant to your being a part of this community, to being part of the Jesus movement. However, as you already know, revolutions are difficult because some people don't want to change. They don't like the new agenda. And so there were some, particularly in this area, that did not get the memo. They didn't understand or they refused. And they said, no, I, I, I'm, I'm in. I, I got this Jesus thing, I, crucifixion, righteousness, resurrection. I'm in. Uh, but the reason why I'm in is because of all of these things, all of these identity markers. So clearly, if there's going to be non-Jewish people who are going to come in, they need to follow this too. They didn't get the memo. So Paul wrote one. <laughs> With that setting, listen carefully to what Paul argues here. Because what you're reading in the letter to the Galatians is a long, extended argument for essentially one thing. Everybody's in. Here's how it goes. Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches of Galatia. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there actually is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ, the good news. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know as Jewish people that a person is justified not by the works of the law. These elements that identify you 
in your ethnic identity, but through the faith of Jesus Christ. It's never been about your obedience to these things. It's always been about who is Jesus? What did Jesus do? Did he do it? Yes, I'm in. It's always been about that. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, not by these other things, not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by doing the works of the law. No one. Just as Abraham, see why Abraham's important? He's pulling in this story. Just as Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, so you see those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. Remember, well, he's going to get to this. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would reckon as righteous, the Gentiles by faith, again, the faith of Jesus, declared the gospel to Abraham saying, All the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. Back to Genesis. For this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham who believed. My point is this. I love it when he says this. My point is this. Just going to get to it. The law, which came 430 years later, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Big fancy words to simply say, That doesn't replace the previous. Just because there's a Torah, just because there's Ten Commandments, just because there's a law, that doesn't replace what was before. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of bondage. Yoke is usually a rabbinic term to refer to interpretation, how you understand something. And they understood these particular elements to be the ethnic identity markers that you needed to adhere to. And here Paul is saying, it is for freedom. This is the great liberation of the letter of Galatians. You don't have to do these things. You are free and liberated. Why? Not because of the law, not because of the things you've done, because of Jesus. That's the point. Now, if you're hearing this, what should your response be? What is your response? Trick question. I know, nobody wants the answer. Trick question, it depends on what you think and feel. This is one of my favorite images from the naked pastor. Look closely. Everybody is drawing boundaries with the sharp end of the pencil. And Jesus is in the middle with the eraser down, trying to erase them. This is one of my favorite cartoons. This feels like exactly what is going on and has been going on and still for crying out loud, goes on today. These are the boundaries. You, you have to do these things before you're in. You have to abide by these things before you... Sorry, you, you can't be a Christian. Well, maybe you're not a Christian. Well, maybe you're not as good of a Christian. Let's just erase all of that. It's never been, it's never been about what you adhere to and what you don't adhere to. It's always been about the faith of Jesus. So if you're somebody who is Jewish, who adheres to this particular ideology, who believes that you're special because of your ethnic identity markers, then you're going to be very upset about this teaching. And you're going to be like, excuse me, these boundary markers have been here for a long time, and if you move these boundaries, that's really going to disrupt things. I mean, this is tradition, tradition, tradition. But if you're one of those people who have been on the outside, who have been pushed, who have been marginalized, who have been said, you do not belong because you do not adhere to X, then this is your response. Yes. Thank you. 
That's what I thought I heard Jesus say, and these people are telling me something different, which sounds like the gospel, what Paul's going to say, but it's not really good news now, is it? No, it's not good news. What Jesus came to do is good news. That is what's so radical, revolutionary, and powerful about the Jesus movement. When everybody's trying to create boundaries, ethnic markers, uh, religious markers, parochial markers that say you're in and you're out, and it really depends on how good or how bad you do at all of these things that you're supposed to be doing, Jesus comes along and says, um, it's just about me, my, who I am, my teachings, uh, my crucifixion, my resurrection, now let's go be the community together. It's always been about covenant first. You can tell that people don't like this because of how Paul opens up the letter. Notice how he opens up the letter in the way that he's, he does. I, we're going to go back to this. Notice Romans. It's very, this is how he opens Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Okay, nice salutation. This is how he opens 1 Corinthians. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church that is in court. Okay, that nice, simple identifier opening. This is how he does Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints. Uh, here's how he does Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, Timothy, our brother, to the saints. Nice, right? Nice openings. This is how he opens Galatians. Paul, an apostle, sent not by people, nor from human authorities. Do you hear the argument that's being made? There are already people that are saying, you're compromising, aren't you, Paul? You're doing this human... This, is, this clearly can't be from God. This, notice what he says later. Am I now seeking human approval by being this generous, by being this capacious, by the, being this open, or God's approval? Am I trying to please people? Notice what he says later on in verse 11. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed to me is not of human origin, no, for I did not receive it from a human. Well, he says it again, actually. I, I did not confer with any human. Over and over and over and over again, Paul seems to be making an argument against the accusations against him that this gospel that you're preaching, Paul, just sounds too good to be true. And honestly, I know a God that puts up these boundaries and says, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. So you're clearly getting this from some other authority. You, maybe you're trying to be relevant to the age or something. Maybe you're trying to be you know, really cool and stuff. Maybe you're trying to please other people because this just sounds way too good to be true. And, then you, and what I am writing you before God, I do not lie. I, I, and I know the exclamation is not in the Greek, but I like it in the English. I do not lie. I'm not lying. So he's making this argument. The reason why he has to write all of this in the letter is because of the fundamental impulse of humanity, of liberation and freedom, causes some of us to revolt. I don't want liberation. I don't want freedom. I need my rules. A radical religion that tears down the dividing markers of human distinction to the establishment appears to be compromises. It can be seen as selling out, compromising, relativizing the principles to the culture or to the world. And so Paul is setting up this entire argument in this letter to say, <laughs> I'm not doing any of that stuff. Does this make sense? Do you hear the argument? Do you see that you, when you read Galatians, you are entering into this two-way conversation? Let me say very clearly, just for the record, some of the things that sometimes comes up when we read Galatians. This is not against Jew Jewish identity or Judaism. It is about anti-conversionism. 
the necessity of one to convert. This is not about being against the Torah. A lot of people say, see, Paul says, you don't have to do the law, so why do we need to practice Sabbath? It's not about that. It's about tribalism, identity, and getting in by obedience. And it's not about anti-doing. It's about anti-works, identifying particular elements that were supposed to give you life and establishing those essentially as the most important by which everybody needs to participate. So, what does this mean for the fruit of the Spirit? That was a really nice, long, lengthy, verbose explanation regarding the argument of Galatians. I just want to talk about love and peace and patience. And can, can we get to that good stuff? The reason why the fruit of the Spirit then is listed in here is because he's also arguing a second foible of humanity. The first is to set up these boundary markers to say, excuse me, you're not in unless you follow this. But the second is to use liberation and freedom to take advantage of it and to say, wow, then nothing really does matter, does it? Because no matter what I do, I'm in. And here's the last side of the argument, which is why fruit of the Spirit is going to come in chapter 5 after he's set up everything in chapters 1 through 4. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. He's recognizing you are not subject by the law. Now the works of the flesh, notice the phrase works, he's using that argument, the same phraseology there, are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Because here's what can happen. Why is any of that bad? Uh, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry. I can still do all of those things because you said I was in. You said I was still a child. Yes. But so then why is this bad? Well, do you see the other side of the argument? Freedom and liberation can lead to who cares? So he's going to make the counter argument. By contrast, if you do this, if you do identify as a child of Abraham, this is what we should see in one's life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law, and he's using that same terminology, against such things. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by that same Spirit. Because the entire project has been since the very beginning to advocate for life. And if you use liberty and freedom, which is the argument, but if you use liberty and freedom as license to do whatever it is that you want, you have also missed the plot. Don't you love it how Paul just, <laughs> uh, it's, it's constant in his letters. <laughs> and everybody's like, yeah. And then he goes, oh, me too. <laughs> Listen, friends, boundaries are bad, but so is license to do whatever the heck you feel like you want to do. And so Paul is ensuring that wisdom is predominant here and that we think clearly about what freedom and liberty actually means. 
Essentially, the question is, what do you focus on? What are the evidences that you actually are a part of this Abrahamic tradition, Abrahamic line? What are those evidences? What should you look for that shows that you are actually in that covenant? Well, there's one possibility. Let's check to see if you are circumcised. Let's check to see if you eat kosher. Let's check to see if you obey all these. Do you follow Sabbath? That's one way to look, check. But again, the problem with that is those are religious practices that have been used to exclude people from inclusion. Paul is suggesting another way to check. How do you check to see if you are part of this community? See if you are part of Abraham's faith tradition? See if you are part of the covenant? See if you are somebody who really is into this? Ah, let's check these things. Is this person loving? Is this person patient? Is this person kind? These are not religious identifiers anymore. These are human virtues, characteristics of what it means to be a good person. In some circles, depending upon your evolutionary psychology, these are pro-social attitudes and characteristics. They help bond the community together. Gentleness, generosity, sharing, those don't sound religious at all. Exactly the point. Because the very beginning of this story was that you were supposed to keep this for this purpose, for life. That has been the beginning of the story since the very beginning. That's been our story. We are trying to advance a kind of humanity that values life. And we believe that being a part of the Abrahamic covenant and faith tradition is the most powerful way to do so. Unfortunately, obviously, things get askew, and we get awry, and we mess things up, and we have our cognitive biases that lead us in this direction, and then we have our political situation that leads us in this direction, and then we have our own fears and uncertainties that lead us in this direction. So we're going to get off the rails sometimes, but that's why we read letters like Galatians to get us back on track. Because it is hard to do. We do get weary from time to time. How many of you have lost patience? How many of you have been unloving? How many of you have really don't want to be joyful right now because being angry is much more important? How many of you are not gentle to one another? How many of you have lost self-control? How many of you don't even believe that self-control is a thing? <laughs> right. It's going to be hard, my friends. It takes work. Covenants and relationships and Advancing this faith is not a walk in the park because our humanity is in the way. So, as we chart through the rest of this series and we talk about each of these elements that are the fruits, the evidences by which we know we are part of this covenant, I would like to close with this. Let us not become weary in doing this good for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. There is a good humanity to be had at the very end. There is a fantastic life to be experienced as a result of following this way. 
And we will be tempted to draw these boundaries and we will be tempted to use our license. We remind ourselves of the long tradition so that we don't get weary in doing this good. And that, my friends, is why we study the fruits of the Spirit. To remind ourselves that our tradition has always been about advancing the kind of humanity that advances life. And we need to be reminded once again, our love is an essential element of what it means to be alive. Joy is an essential element of what it means to be alive. Kindness, generosity with one another. By the way, all virtues that feel like they are lost whenever you turn on the news. If you don't think this is relevant, we may be missing the plot. So that's where we're headed over the next nine-ish weeks. These are the fruits that we hope to cultivate and if we can actually do this, if we can actually hang in there and not grow weary, can you imagine what kind of life can be had both for us personally and us communally? Isn't that a beautiful vision to consider? And that's why Paul writes this letter. Don't forsake the goodness of the gospel of Jesus for another gospel, which really is not a gospel at all. It's not good news. It's actually very bad news. News. Let's not go there. Let's pursue these fruits and figure out how to cultivate that. As we come to the table, we are reminded once again, there's no boundaries. We didn't draw a line and we are not going to check whether or not you follow any of those works of the law. You are welcome at this table. Not sure if you're a Christian, you are welcome at this table. Uh, you felt like you've uh, fallen short. You are welcome at this table. Well, this other church told me that I'm not a Christian because you are welcome at this table. That's what freedom and liberation in Jesus means. As Danielle has said multiple times, this is not our table. It's his table. And as a result of the faith and faithfulness of Jesus, you are welcome at this table. And we mean it. We sincerely mean it and hope that you feel it. So as we sing you are going to be invited to come and participate and partake of the elements that are the symbol and representation of this good news. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. My friends, all are welcome at this table. Please come as we sing.